Recently, I was at a Cleveland Cavaliers basketball game. How many Cleveland Cavaliers fans do we have in here? How many of you were Cleveland Cavaliers fans last year but didn't raise your hand right now? There's a name for that, bandwagon. I've been to dozens of Major League Baseball games. I've never been to an NFL football game. I've been to a handful of college football games, mostly Ohio State, and just two pro basketball games in the last year, both of them. And it was special to go to Quicken Loans Arena and to take in an NBA game in that venue. But I've got to admit, it was a bit of a letdown. Cleveland fans, and there are many of you, even those that don't admit it, have, a, have had a lot to cheer about in recent years. After an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the Browns this past fall came within a whisker of winning as much as losing, which is remarkable because they had trouble winning at all for several years. A couple of years ago, the Indians, 2016, came within a few outs of winning the World Series. They were fun to watch. But I'll confess for people like uh, Pastor Dustin and myself, we had a great time that year seeing the curse broken after 108 years and the Chicago Cubs were actually the World Series champion. Don't worry, Cleveland fans, the Indians' time will come. We've just waited a little longer than you. Then we have the Cavaliers. It wasn't that long ago, the summer of 2016, that the Cavs ended uh, decades of Cleveland agony with an NBA championship over the Golden State Warriors. And it was a series for the ages, you might remember it, a fitting, glorious culmination to one of the most fabled stories in all of Cleveland history. After hope and heartache and betrayal and reconciliation, the son of Northeast Ohio himself, LeBron James, returned to Cleveland and almost single-handedly won the championship for the Cavs. He took what was a very good team, depleted by injuries that year and in that series, and almost single-handedly rallied them in a come-from-behind championship series. So in 2016, the curse ended and King James ruled. If it wasn't true before, it was solidified that year that LeBron James achieved almost divine status in that city and that region. LeBron reigned. Which is probably why my only visit to Quicken Loans Arena was such a letdown. Because LeBron James wasn't on the court. He was only a distant memory, a, a source of nostalgia for everyone there. LeBron was gone, and in his absence, nothing would ever be the same. Get out your Kleenex. I see those tears for some of you. No matter how hard the Cavs tried, no matter how many of them returned from injuries, no matter how loyal those fans remained, it wouldn't be the same. And, and the, the arena was kind of a shell of a place on that night. Basketball divinity was now absent from Cleveland. You see, when His Majesty was present, anything was possible. There, there was no amount of opposition, no obstacle that seemed too great for him. With him, winning wasn't only a possibility, it was actually expected by the fans. But without him, even modest expectations are dashed again 
and again. His presence was the determining factor. Remember the feeling? You Cavs fans, can you relate? The anticipation, the thrill, the loss. On a far grander scale, far more important, the same was true in Joshua's time. Here's Joshua and Israelites on the verge of entering the promised land. Here they were. They had scouted out the land, even assisted by Rahab the prostitute. Here they were with a new leader, Joshua, who actually had experience as a spy decades before that. And here they were with God on their side. And he would be moving along with them, and he would be moving in front of them because he was for them. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Joshua chapter 3. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. And now the first book of uh, the historical books, Joshua. Joshua chapter 3, we've been there for the last several, several weeks. And today we're going to kind of embed ourselves within the Israelite community as they cross over the Jordan River. In fact, that's the title in many of your Bibles. I hope you bring a hard copy with you. If you need to use something electronic, pick up a copy as you come in. We're going to be following along today like we do most Sundays. And to have that text in front of you makes a huge difference in understanding its significance. And what we're going to see is a faithful God who cares for his people again and again. As we dive in, we're going to look at four stages of their journey. And we're going to see four commands that God would give to them as he would give to us in order to be faithful followers of God. You'll find them in your outline. Follow along on the back of your worship program. The first is this. Do what I say. The detailed preparation, do what I say. Verse 1, chapter 3, follow with me. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. But don't do that too close. Look at verse 4. There's a sacred distance to keep. And you notice the phrase there, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was Israel's most sacred physical possession. It was a, essentially a gold-covered box that... Uh, that symbolized this, the special presence of God in their midst. Uh, the, the high priest would sprinkle blood to atone for the sins of the people. And, and that Ark of the Covenant contained at least three things essential to his people. First of all, it contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Remember Moses coming down from Mount Sinai? Sinai? It, it contained uh, the special priest's rod, Aaron's rod... And it contained a jar of manna, the buffet that the Israelites enjoyed in the desert. And that ark would lead them into the promised land. Now when we read about something like an ark of the covenant, it's odd, it's strange to us. In fact, we read that and we say, isn't that kind of unnecessary, over the top, exaggerated? I mean, why do you even need to have this big box with poles? Why does God need that? Why the pomp and the circumstance? Why the regulations and the prohibitions about where you stand and how you follow? Most of the reason why it's so odd to us is because we live in an egalitarian and individualistic culture. Egalitarian in that everybody is equal, so we think, including God, and individualistic 
that everyone gets to be their own boss, not God. You see, if we're honest, many people today are good with God as a counselor, as an advisor, as a cheerleader, as a source of comfort. But we don't like a God who is our master, who is our Lord, who is king in our lives. And yet God is all of those things. God is, yes, with us and he's for us, but God is also over us and above us. As one person said, these two aspects of God's nature, his close comforting presence and his awesome, fearsome glory, they're kept in a healthy balance in the Bible. And they should be by us too. God is our companion as we go through life, but God is not our buddy. That's why we read in verse 5 of chapter 3, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecration is this idea of setting apart, of making sacred, of sanctifying. It means anything in me, anything in my behavior that would stand in the way of, of my connection to God needs to be gotten rid of, needs to be set aside. Here we know from previous commandments in the first five books of the Old Testament that a couple of things were necessary here. One was that all the Israelites would wash their clothes and make them clean, and that sexual relations should temporarily be abstained from. Why? Because there are things that would be a distraction to God's people as he had a holy task in front of them to cross the Jordan and to be in awe of what he could do. They would see amazing things, the text says, miracles, if they would only look. Now, there were two explicit purposes for this miracle from God. Look at verses 7 and 10. First of all, Joshua was to be exalted. He was to be lifted up. Joshua was Israel's new leader, and the Lord wanted the people to see that his hand of validation and affirmation was on Joshua. Leadership matters because leaders represent God to the people and represent the people to God. It's the role of a prophet that we see throughout the Bible. But the point wasn't to glorify Joshua and make him look great. The point was to glorify God and make him look great in the eyes of the people. Second thing, verse 10, look there. The people needed to know that God was powerful and promise-keeping. The living God is among you and he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites. number of people groups, ethnicities are listed there, and often they're subsumed under the, the description the Canaanites, the people who lived in the land that the Israelites would soon possess. God's instructions are very specific. Have the priests carry the ark. Have them step into the Jordan. God, the Lord of all the earth, will go ahead of you. God says, look at me. Trust in my goodness. See my power. Obey me. Do what I say. That's the essence of faith, isn't it? Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 1, beginning of the Hall of Faith chapter, says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We don't like that. We like seeing is believing. But what if believing means seeing? Warren Wiersbe says it well, faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. The difference is huge. 
Let me ask you this morning. Are there some instructions, some commands, some prohibitions that God has given to you, to us, that are difficult for you to understand and almost impossible to obey, you think? God's word says to us this morning, look at Joshua, look at the Israelites, look at the claims of God. Or as the old song goes, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Now the main event. Verses 14 and following, God says, watch what I do. True confession this morning, I'm a geography nerd. Growing up, I could entertain myself for a long period of time looking up countries and maps in the World Book Encyclopedia. Who remembers the World Book Encyclopedia? Yes, I have some fans here. I could spend hours looking at the Rand McNally Atlas in the car to figure out where we were going and what it would look like and if we're going the fastest route. Geography, I was fascinated by it all. I could only wish that several other members of our family would share that same fascination when we travel. You know, our phones and our GPS devices have, have kind of made us all dumb when it comes to geography. But I will always be fascinated with maps. A little geography lesson, a little map here is helpful for us to, to understand the main event in this story. The Jordan River essentially goes from north to south in the land of Israel. From the Sea of Galilee up north, you might have a map in the back of your Bible, down to the Dead Sea in the south. In fact, I look forward with my wife in five or six weeks to seeing that in person. We get to go for the first time to the land of Israel. A number of you have been there. And we get to see that and a thousand other sites of the land where so many of these events take place. If, if you don't have plans in late March and you'd like to go with us, we still have a couple spots left. See me immediately after the service and we'll see what we can do. Or you can contact our admin assistant, Karen Esterbrook, for details. We'd love to have you join us from our church and some others uh, from sister churches on that trip. Back to our passage here. Uh, I'm, I'm told that the Jordan River is not very impressive. You see a picture of it on the screen. It matches the mighty Olentangy as it, as it goes through OSU campus, or maybe Mohican as it, as it meanders through Loudonville. The Jordan is small and tame, except during flood season. You see, in the spring, in late March and April, the Jordan can go from about 100 feet wide, which is smaller than this room here, to almost a mile wide, overflowing its banks and water everywhere. So in that state, on the right, it would not be a very inviting river to cross, would it? The Jordan was at flood stage when the Israelites stepped up to the banks. And yet God commanded his people to trust him and to obey, to experience his power, because game time had arrived and the Lord was ready to act. The king, the creator, was ready here to show his prowess. Drum roll, please, verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. 
Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. Sound familiar? While all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. The crossing of the Jordan wasn't noteworthy. Crossing it at flood stage on dry ground certainly was. In fact, it's a miracle beyond all comprehension and explanation. The only people that it shouldn't have surprised were the Israelites themselves. I'm sure there are people here who read stories like this from the Bible and say those are interesting tales to read to your five-year-old at night. But we modern people, we know that miracles don't happen. And if we could only excise some of these fantastical stories from the Bible, then our faith would be modern. i got news for you. Christianity is a faith of the supernatural. You take miracles out of Christianity and you're left with a hollow shell. And the greatest of the miracles was done by Jesus Christ when the Father raised him from the dead. If you can't believe in miracles, you can't believe in Christ. This was a miracle. This was God acting on their behalf. And like at the Red Sea, this was God doing what no human being could do to perform a miracle, to keep his promises, and to protect his people. God was showing his power, and he wants us to see it. Just like the children of Israel, you and I are called to step up in obedience in trust of God's ways. And unless we step out in life, unless we, let's say it, get our feet wet, in faith, we're not going to make much progress in the Christian life or see him move in us. To trust and obey is to invite the awesome power of God in our lives. He says, watch what I do. As one of our pastors said this week, looking at the circumstances, there's no reason for hope. Looking to God, there's no reason to fear. Chapter 4, third point in your outline, God says, praise what I've done. A sacred commemoration. Have you ever experienced or witnessed an incredible event or, or an accomplishment where you were almost paralyzed with awe? Some of you maybe have seen a rocket launch or maybe you've seen an explosion. Maybe you've been in an auto accident. Maybe you've seen a a sports achievement, a game-winning shot or goal. Many of you have seen the birth of a child. You've been in the courtroom where there was a verdict handed down. You've, you've had a financial windfall. Do you remember how you felt when you experienced that moment? For many people, especially the extroverts, words can't come out fast enough when that kind of thing happens. Can you believe it? Did you see that? Can that be possible? That's a game changer. My life will never be the same. Unbelievable. And then we recount again and again 
what we just experienced as if the repetition will make it more believable. And that's our tendency. We experience things that are remarkable, incredible, supernatural in life, and we fixate on the event rather than on the power and the source of the power. We, we replay the story in our minds, forgetting the source. We stand in awe, but fail to fall in worship. Have you experienced that before? God knows our tendency. He knows in our fallen nature, we tend to fixate on the object rather than on the power. And yet when that power is God, when the result is our good and our salvation, it's a tragedy that we don't recognize it. In fact, it's blind. Which is why God calls them and he calls us to build altars of remembrance in our lives to highlight his mighty hand. God knows we need to remember because we need to worship. He calls the Israelites here to, to build patterns and places into their lives, altars of remembrance. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Follow with me. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. And, and verse 8 and following, that's what happened. They followed God's instructions. They built an altar, not an altar for sacrifice, but an altar of remembrance. It reminds us of times before, including the Israelites long after Moses was on Mount Sinai, that they built an altar of remembrance to the Lord. Why? Why does God want that here? Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. To serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. This was to be a visual aid to help future generations, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, see that God provides for his people. And the Ark and the stones were key in that. Here's why. Because we need to remember that nothing can stop the forward movement of God. And an altar of remembrance would remind those generations again and again. So let me ask you this morning, what altars of remembrance do you have in your life that remind you of God's power and his provision to you? What altars of remembrance do you have in your marriage, in your family, resulting from your health. We need symbols and songs and ceremonies in our lives to remind us how faithful God has been to us. Every generation needs to have God's mighty works remembered or they will forget and drift away. Every generation is one generation away 
from spiritual extinction. Every December 21st, or the Friday when school gets out before Christmas, our family goes out to eat at the same restaurant here in Polaris. We've done it since 2011, which was when we moved to Columbus. And we do it at the same time because of what happened to us on December 21, 2010. We were still living in Chicago, and as many of you know, we were involved in a severe automobile accident in northwest Indiana. We were on our way to visit my parents in North Carolina. And in that accident, all of our kids were injured. Three of them were hospitalized. Joshua endured a seven-hour surgery. We totaled the van. We racked up several hundred thousand dollars of expenses. Thank God for insurance. And we left the hospital on Christmas Day. But during those moments and those hours and those days, we saw the hand of God on our lives. And we saw it especially through the people who called us their friend and bent over backwards to help us. God protected our lives. He delivered us from danger, even death on that day. And we realized we owe him our lives and we give thanks for them. So we have an altar of remembrance. Our family, that restaurant, in prayer, with thanks. I don't know all the circumstances of your lives. You've had different trials. You've had different tragedies. You've had different deliverance in your life. But I'm here to tell you, friend, that God has been good to you. What markers do you have in your life to remember that? Do you have symbols in your lives to highlight that? Plaques or wall hangings or pictures? Do you have ceremonies? Do you have traditions? Do you have meals or outings to remember God's goodness to you? Because if you've ever seen the hand of God in your lives, it does you and me well to build an altar of remembrance to thank Him. Today, at 5 o'clock, we gather in this room for communion. Do you know what communion is? It's an altar of remembrance. It's a celebration for what God has done on the cross in Jesus Christ. It's a celebration of what God is doing in us through His Spirit. It's a celebration of what God is preparing for us in the future. It's praise for what God does. And it's not an optional one for followers of Jesus. It's an all-family reunion to consecrate ourselves and to celebrate God. So if you've been saved, Jesus calls you to come. Simply show up, 5 o'clock. Bring some food if you're able to, to share. We all will, and participate. It's a highlight because it's an altar of thanks. We need altars of remembrance in our lives. Our families do, our lives do, our churches do. Because they sear into our minds a remembrance of how God has been faithful. How God has been good. How we give him gratitude. Altars of remembrance, if we're honest, come with some risk. Because if we're not careful, we can remember that God acted with power and with goodness, and leave it in the past. But that's not the purpose of an altar. 
There's nothing wrong with an altar if we don't leave it there. If they don't so link us to the past that we fail to remember a God of the present. Glorifying the past is a good way to petrify the present and to rob the church of power. Why? Because the purpose is to remember what God has done and to remind ourselves what he can do in the present and in the future. An altar of remembrance confronts us with the question, can God do it again? In new circumstances, in new situations, in new generations, the book of Joshua says, you bet he can. Trust him and follow. In Joshua's day here, there were tens of thousands, 40,000 battle-ready men who crossed over the Jordan by the Lord's power. In Joshua's day, Joshua was validated again by the Lord as the new leader of his people. In Joshua's day, God stopped the water here so that all the people could cross over on dry land in flood season. In Joshua's day, the people saw their dependence on God. In Joshua's day, when people obeyed what they knew they were supposed to do, things went well for them. In our day, we're called to trust and obey. We're called to to have faith and to follow that in action. And God will care for us even in the hard times because he will never leave us nor forsake us. There's a contemporary worship song from a few years ago that says, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you, God, leave us on our own. You are faithful, God. You are faithful. Why did God do this back in Joshua's time? Why did he deliver them? Why does he deliver us in our day? Why does he care for you? Why does he never leave you alone? Here's why. So that you could tell who he is. The spiritual significance of this whole story is found at the end of chapter 4 and what God calls them in response to do. Verse 19 of chapter 4 follow On the tenth day of the first month, the people went, out, went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, when your kids say... What do these stories mean? Tell them. Tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. The same God who's done that before, he can do it again. The God who delivered in the past can deliver us now. And we should anticipate his deliverance in the future. That's the kind of God he is. Because God is jealous for his glory and he's jealous for his name. But he's also faithful to his people. And a neon sign of why is found in the very last verse of this chapter. Verse 24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. God's not into just doing stunts in order to impress people. 
He's into giving reasons for us to trust him. Look here. Verse 24, God delivered his people to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he, Yahweh, is powerful, that he is mighty, that he's not a God to be trifled with or written off or ignored, that he's the God that even the prophets of Baal's time and the people who saw it would exclaim, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In fact, that's what the psalm says, Psalm 67. May may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Kind of reminds us that Matthew 28, the great commission from Jesus, wasn't the beginning of God's plan for the nations. God has had the nations in his sights all along. And his work in his people is never just for them, but it's through them. Like the Israelites, our stories are not just meant for ourselves, but they're meant for others. They're meant for the nations. Second, God delivers his people so that they would always fear the Lord your God. God's not a distant deity. He's a personal God. He's Yahweh who is with you and for you. And the only response that makes any sense is to fear him. Not the fear of being terrorized or, or the facing extinction, but also not the fear of a casual respect of a boss. This is the fear that results in awe of God's power, God's presence, and, and causes us to entrust our lives to him, come what may. This is reverence and obedience. It is giving God our worship, our allegiance, and are following whatever he says. And it's a fear that leads to wisdom and knowledge and understanding and faithfulness and life. When we follow the Lord, we're awestruck again and again by his power. He's faithful. We will never walk alone. We're cared for. God conquers. How do we know that? Because the ultimate example is in the person of Jesus Christ. God sent him to take care of our greatest need to show off his greatest power so that we would offer everything in our lives to say the Lord he is God. I will trust and obey. In the Christian life, you're either an overcomer or you're overcome. You're either a victor or a victim. Too many of God's people have the mistaken idea that salvation is all that's involved in the Christian life, but salvation is only the beginning. God's faithfulness is not just to bring us into his family, but to lead us on into his blessing for the nations.
Just ask Joshua. God's faithfulness fuels our awe of God and fuels our witness to the world. As Danny and the musicians come to lead us in response, let me give a few points of application. First of all, come to communion tonight. Jesus' family reunion for us to celebrate. Gather on Sundays to remember and to celebrate, which is exactly what you're doing today. Good for you and good for your life before God. Pursue life-giving patterns, reading the scriptures, praying, because it's hard to obey what we don't know. And God's people are people of his word who respond to his word. And lastly, remember the past. But don't remember it to foster nostalgia. Remember it to fuel anticipation, because the same God moves today.